0: Genesis is the book of beginnings. It tells us about God who created everything and called it good. It teaches us about humanity, how things went wrong in the world, and God's plan to make everything right again. We are Christ the King Church. For more information, visit ctksnc.com. It's exciting to be a part of uh, celebrating church planning all around the world with Acts 29. Several other Acts 29 churches. We've been a part of this for years. Um, we support several churches. There's um, a guy in Detroit, uh, Tyler Saint Clair. He's planting Cornerstone Church. It's a church in a hard place. It's a particular initiative and uh, difficult areas to plant churches. So we support him. Some of y'all recognize Arjuna. Uh, he preached here, uh, I think, two years ago. Uh, Arjuna from India. He's a friend of mine. Um, he's he's planting hundreds of churches. Literally hundreds of churches in India, Arjuna is planting. Um, Patrick White, Christ the King, Eastern Hills, he's an applicant, so he's in the process of joining Acts 29. Um, And Cedar City Church, please um, drop down the menu on the giving link that Cameron talked about, just drop down to Benevolence, anything... Uh, given this week, we will go to, to David Hackney. I met with him two weeks ago. I took that picture that was showed. Um, I met with him and, and talked to him about his effort to plant a church, and he's he's persevering, and um, church planting is not easy. So I, I have a role with Acts 29. My role is uh, I am the director of the, I call it the Ohio River Territory, meaning that I oversee lots of church plants and pastors, and uh, tried to shepherd them and encourage them all up and down the Ohio River in Ohio, Kentucky, West Virginia, and so forth. So um, it, it's a great network to be a part of. And you know, Cameron mentioned like we want to. We've done this twice here in Eastern Hills. We want to do four more times over the next 20 years uh, to keep planting churches. It's in our DNA, and so we'll continue doing this and. We'll keep praying that God will provide all the resources, particularly a church planter. That's, uh, that's always the next step. Um, we'll pray that God will provide that, and that's, uh, Acts 29 is a great partner in it. Well, last week, we looked at the story of Isaac and Rebekah, where they met, and they got married, and now the story moves forward. Isaac, Isaac is a, uh, he doesn't get a lot of space in the book of Genesis, um, it moves pretty quickly from Abraham to his grandson, uh, Jacob. So, we're about to see that Isaac and Rebekah, they had twin sons. And these twin sons are Esau and Jacob. And although Esau is the older of the two twins, the covenant promise passes to Jacob. Genesis 25 to 35, which is, we're going to pick it up today in 25. These 10 chapters of the book of Genesis is all about Jacob as he takes center stage in the book. And the story And his story is marked by several different conflicts. He has the story, uh, his conflict with his older brother Esau, a conflict with his dad, Isaac, conflict with his uncle, Laban, and ultimately there's a conflict with God. That's Jacob's story. So Jacob was the son who wasn't loved. His dad didn't love him. His brother rejected him. His uncle, Laban, took advantage of him. God was the one that truly loved him. And even though Jacob was a good man, um, his father Isaac didn't value Jacob's qualities. He preferred Esau, who was Jacob's brother. And maybe you can relate to this. You know, a lot of us, we go through life, um, maybe you feel invisible, maybe you feel like you don't have a whole lot of the things that the world values. And so you just don't feel like you, you have a place to fit in. You know, growing up, I was the middle child. I had a firstborn personality, but I was still the middle child. <laughs> And so uh, my older sister, she was popular and beautiful and everybody knew her and everybody loved her and I always, call it, like, always kind of in her shadow. Um, Jacob is the middle child, even though he's a twin, he's still kind of a middle child here. You know, we're all affected in big ways by the family of our origin. And these experiences that we have in childhood, they, they affect us for the rest of our lives. And so because of this, uh, a lot of people, they just feel second rate. They feel unlovable or unnoticed. They feel like they're never quite good enough, and a lot of times even have a hard time giving and receiving love in a healthy way. Well, in Jacob's case, he didn't have the love of his earthly father, but God taught him to receive love from his heavenly father. So let's dig in. We're in Genesis chapter 25, Genesis chapter 25, I want to pick up our story in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Let's pause here. So Isaac and Rebekah married when he was 40 years old. And a few verses later, it says that the children were born when Isaac was 60. So she was barren, in fertility for 20 years. But finally, they prayed, God answered their prayers, and Rebekah conceived, and she conceived twins, but it was a hard pregnancy, it says. Verse 22 said the children struggled her, jostled within her. So before they were even born, these two twin sons growing within her had a contentious relationship. And then in verse 23, the Lord revealed this oracle, this prophecy, saying that these twin sons will divide from one another and become two different nations. But the older son will serve the younger son. Now that's inverted from the typical way in the ancient culture. So God is declaring here that the covenant headship belongs to Jacob covenant headship belongs to Jacob. He is the heir of the promises. And so this scene is set for an epic sibling rivalry that is going to be filled with strife and deception and death threats and it's going to last for decades. Right here, the scene is set even before they're born. You see this this thing developing. Alright, now let's keep going to verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Pause. So even though Jacob and Esau were twins, they couldn't have been more different. They're almost polar opposites. You have Esau, who was a man's man. So he's naturally strong and masculine. He was even born hairy. He's probably shaving by his first birthday. Just this hairy dude. And it says he's outdoorsy. He's a skillful hunter, right? So he's kind of like Gaston, if you know Gaston. It's like I couldn't get the movie out of my head all week. I was just thinking like... He uses antlers in all of his decorating. Uh, Every inch of him is covered with hair. So I'm just like, this is Gaston. He even wears a red cloak. So Esau, Gaston. Maybe that'll help. Um, That's not Bible, by the way. That's just my own conjecture here. But um, Esau was hot-headed too. So we're going to see this in a few minutes, that he's impulsive and reckless. Um, He's driven by his flesh, his fleshly desires. Now, Jacob, he was level-headed. Verse twenty-seven says that he's a quiet man, but the word "quiet" doesn't exactly get the sense of the the original language. So the Hebrew root word is "tam," t a m, and the word usually means blameless or complete. and And every other instance, it, it has this moral component. Um, you know, uh, the, the same word is used in the Book of Job to describe Job's character, you know, that says, uh, the book of Job says he was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. That word blameless is this word, Tom, which is the same word translated quiet to describe Jacob. So when I initially was kind of putting my notes together, I thought, well, Jacob, he's more of an introvert, more of a quiet guy, but I don't think that that's really uh, accurate. I think what the, the text is communicating here is that he is a, he is a level-headed guy. He's not the hothead. He's, he's the contrast to Esau. So he's cool under pressure. It's like He'd make a good poker player. So at his best, Jacob is tough-minded and formidable and self-controlled. At his worst, he could be calculating and manipulative. And we'll see both of these in his story. Now, this clash of personalities is going to play out in the next episode when Jacob takes advantage of Esau's recklessness. So let's keep reading. Let's jump down to verse 29. Strange story. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Now get this, thus Esau despised his birthright. The story is often presented as Jacob stole Esau's birthright. You know, Jacob is the villain, and Esau is this, this hapless guy who was starving to death, and Jacob manipulated him. And I don't think that's true at all. I think the, the, the emphasis here in Genesis is that Esau despised his birthright. This is a negative judgment on Esau's character. Now, the birthright wasn't just land and camels and houses and riches and so forth. The birthright included the promises of God, right? It's the the covenant that was initially given to Abraham being passed down. So the authority and the responsibility of the covenant, the spiritual headship of the family, was part of this birthright. Now, verse 34 says Esau despised his birthright. So Isaac, his father who had received this oracle previously, where the older shall serve the younger, Isaac should have already given this blessing to Jacob. He should have already made it known that the birthright belonged to the younger son and against the convention of their culture. But God decreed it in verse 23, the older will serve the younger. Jacob was to be prominent. But Isaac didn't do it. He didn't give it to Jacob. And the reason is that Isaac and Esau shared the same weakness. And that weakness is mentioned in verse 28. He ate of his game, meaning that Isaac had a taste for the food, the wild game that Esau would hunt and bring home. So Isaac and Esau, they have this common interest in hunting, and thus it says, Isaac didn't love Jacob, he loved Esau. Now Jacob, he knew that his birthright rightly belonged to him, and that his father had failed to fulfill the responsibility to pass it to him. So Esau, we see that he's unfit for the responsibility. He's too much of a hothead. He was a brute, a bit of a wild man, and easily given over to his fleshly appetite, as we've seen in the story here. So he didn't care about the birthright. He despised his birthright. And the book of Hebrews actually mentions this very story when it says in chapter 12, as an admonition. It says, don't be unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. So whenever Esau came in from the fields, he was tired, he was hangry, you know, overdramatic. He's like, I'm about to starve, I'm gonna die, give me some of your food. And whenever Jacob saw how badly Esau wanted the food, he said, I'll sell it to you for your birthright. And Esau took the deal. He didn't care. He's like, yeah, whatever, whatever. Take the birthright. Just give me some food. He he, he was so consumed with his hunger at that moment, so focused on the present tense. He didn't really have much regard at all for what it was that he was giving up. So he swore an oath and gave up everything. And then after eating the food, it says Esau rose and went his way. So clearly he wasn't starving to death. He was just hungry. (laughs) We've all been that way. But that desire for food was so all-consuming that it, it drove him to do something totally irrational. He was just impatient. So delayed gratification was not on the menu. He was only concerned with the here and now. He despised his birthright. He was unholy, as Hebrews twelve sixteen says. He didn't care about the covenant and the blessings. So the picture that is portrayed here of Esau is that he's an aggressive guy. He's impulsive. He he is given over to his fleshly appetites. So he hadn't learned yet how to control his impulses. Now, God created men for a dominion. Men are naturally competitive, men are naturally more aggressive. And according to the creation mandate, that's a gift, right? That's a good thing. Genesis 1.28, uh, God calls the man and the woman, and he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Exercise dominion over it. And the masculine aggression and competition that men typically have is well-suited for that task. God made made men with this ability. So masculine aggression is hardwired in. It can be a powerful thing. And as boys grow up to be men... There's this dragon that grows within them, and that dragon is their masculine aggression or masculine energy, and it needs to be tamed. So that dragon of masculine strength would include a desire for conquest, for honor, for sex, for money, for fame, for success. All of that is, are things that men are naturally going to crave, and those desires can be good and God-honoring. They're not bad in themselves. They can lead to bad things. But the desires themselves are not bad. If they're under control and directed towards a good purpose, they can be glorious. But if they're not under control, those desires can become a terrible, ferocious dragon within a man. And it will destroy him and it will consume him. Proverbs 25, verse 28 says, A man without self-control... Is like a city broken into and left without walls. Defenseless. Totally vulnerable not only to external enemies, but the enemy within. Because he has not tamed the enemy within. The dragon within him is just having its way. So a man's masculine desires can either be his greatest strength or his greatest weakness. Probably a bit of both. But regardless, that dragon must be tamed. Before a man is fit to rule anything or anyone else, first he needs to rule himself. He needs self-control. He's got to learn to rule himself. Esau's dragon was off the leash. He lacked self-control. He was driven by his desires, and all he could think about was his desires. He couldn't restrain for a moment and be patient to have somebody else that was part of this complex of families that would be living together in Abraham's household. You know, Somebody could have given him something to eat, but he just saw something and said, I want it, and he gave everything up to get the one thing that was right in front of him, and he couldn't delay it long enough for somebody else to prepare it. It would have taken half an hour, maybe an hour, but he... He just was so overcome with his hunger. And so he, that dragon consumed his birthright. He wanted it so bad that he just gave it all up. So he was impulsive, and impulsive decisions are rarely the right ones. He was a reckless fool. Now, we all know of stories. We've seen and heard stories of people who put themselves and their children in danger just to get high one more time. A reckless decision. You know, I know a man who became a Christian through our church several years ago. We baptized him. We had a portable baptistry that we set up out front. We baptized him right out front of this church here. Um, he was he was turning his life around. He, he still had some bad habits. He still had some bad friends, but he was he was moving in the right direction. But one night he made a stupid decision. One night he went out with some friends and he made the dumb decision to give in to peer pressure, and he stood watch while his friends, or friend, I think there was just one other guy, his friend robbed another person at knife point. And so the police arrived on the scene and he kind of tossed the knife aside, but tracked him down, the police found the knife, and now he's about halfway through a 12 year sentence in prison. So it was a dumb decision. The dragon within him couldn't tell his friend, I ain't going, I don't care what you say. Let's look at verse 28. I think verse 28 is, we're going to be able to identify the source of some of Esau's problems, some of Jacob's problems. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game but Rebecca loved Jacob so just as Jacob and his brother had this contentious relationship it also seems that he had a contentious relationship with his dad only his mother loved him (laughs) of course everybody needs their mother's love right? I mean we need our mother's love but everybody also knows instinctively that a mother's love is going to come naturally a mother's love is more can be assumed by default, it's not the case with the father's love I mean, a mother carried him. She gave birth to him. She nursed him, cared for him. Of course, mothers love their sons. But it's a different story with fathers. Some fathers leave. Some fathers stay. Some some stay and they're emotionally distant. Different kinds of fathers. You know, I know a man in his 60s who told me once that he went his entire life never hearing his father say, I love you. And the fact that he told me that in his 60s, it says a lot, doesn't it? It means that that left a big scar in his life because he never knew his father's approval. Some fathers will only express love when their son performs well. Love is the carrot at the end of the stick, and they can never get there. Some fathers are like Isaac, where they play favorites, and they choose and prefer one son over another, or one child over another, and the son that isn't loved they're, they're wounded by that. And so Isaac was not a great dad. He was not a great father. He openly rejected his one son and played favorites with his other son. And that scarred Jacob. He left a big hole in his life. And the fact that this pointed out here in the text is noteworthy. There's something deeply psychological about fatherhood. And that's good. I mean, God, God's designed us this way. To need affection from mothers and fathers, and we need them, those are different kinds of love, and we need them for different reasons. But there's something deep and psychological about the love of a father. God created human fathers to be a proxy for a heavenly father, and so you could say it this way, we all need love from a masculine authority. So in one way or another, we've all been profoundly shaped by our fathers, our dads, by his presence or by his absence. If you've never met your dad, that shapes you. He left, a, he left a big imprint by his absence. Let me read you something. Let's see if we'll play a game of who said this. Okay, I'm going to read you a quote, see if anybody knows who said this. Here's a quote. We know the statistics that children that grow up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crimes nine times more likely to drop out of schools, and 20 times more likely to end up in prison. They're more likely to have behavioral problems or run away from home or become teenage parents themselves. And the foundations of our community are weaker because of it. Any ideas who said that? Brady Faust, do you know? That's right, Barack Obama. It's interesting, isn't it? A lot of little boys never receive love and affection from their father, and yet they still grow up and have wildly successful careers. And yet behind the strength and competence of their success is a little boy looking for a male authority to notice him. He's driven by a desire for a father's love. You know the movie Citizen Kane, this just popped into my head movie Citizen Kane is a story about a boy who needed his father's love. And it haunted him his whole life. Many little girls never receive healthy love and affection from their father. Or, in many cases, they do receive unhealthy affection. And it's abusive. And so, as a result, they grow up with this distorted view of male affection and even a sexualized perception of their own value. I read a story once, Um, I can't remember where I read it, but I I clipped it. Um, The woman, her name is Stephanie, and she was a former exotic dancer. Here's here's what she said. She said, from your father, you learn how a man is gonna treat you and love you, and how you see authority, and how you react to authority. When there's not that male influence, there's this void, this hunger for male attention. I definitely needed that and wanted that in my life. The thing that struck me when I read this is that she was not a Christian. She was just writing from her own experience, but her insight is spot on. You may know of uh, David Spade, the actor, Tommy Boy. Gifted, gifted actor. (laughs) David Spade from Tommy Boy, he grew up with his mom and his dad and uh, his brothers. In House in the Suburbs, you would think kind of a, a... Typical American life, and uh, he said once in a story that you know he was he was out playing football with his dad, and his dad said, uh, "Hey, David, go out long for a pass." And so he'd go out, and he said, "No, go even further." And he went out further. Go even further, and he went out further, and he said his dad literally turned around, got in his car, and left, and he never saw him again. He just <laughs> sent him away and abandoned his family. Later on, uh, his mom got remarried, and then he got a new stepdad. But then whenever David Spade was 16 years old, that man killed himself. So there's this wound, right? This father, this father wound in his soul. And he's like a lot of comedians. A lot of comedians will make a career out of using comedy as a form of therapy. Fathers, if you've got children, let me speak to fathers for a moment. Your presence and your love and your authority are the best gifts that you could give to your children. Your love, your authority, your presence, those are the best gifts that you could ever give your children. Spare your children the expensive toys and the elite education and the fancy clothes because that's not what they need. They need you. They need their father to be present with them to notice them, to talk to them, for they know that their father cares about them, sees them. They need to know what it feels like to be loved and accepted, not only by their father, but what the father represents, which is a good, strong male authority. They need to love that because, as you can see where I'm going going with this, that, that conditions the heart and orients the heart in a particular way. When they learn to to receive the love and discipline of a good father, it's like boot camp for their souls that trains them to receive the love and discipline of their heavenly father and to receive his goodness and to trust his goodness and his character. No child should ever have to wonder if his or her daddy loves him. And it's not that hard to show it to them. In the same way, no Christian should ever have to wonder if their heavenly father loves them. Of course he does. Of course he does. We just need to believe that. So this was the hole in Jacob's heart. He was well acquainted with heartache. And it comes from not receiving the love of his earthly father. Now, I'm not not psychologizing the text here. As you read through the text, as we go through it over the next few few weeks, this should become pretty evident that he is seeking a blessing. What he wants is a blessing. He spent his whole life haunted by that, and his story is dominated by a hunger for a blessing. And eventually, what Jacob learns is that no earthly blessing from any human being can satisfy him. And so the, the story reaches a crescendo. In Genesis 32, when he wrestles with God, and do you remember what he says to God when he wrestles with him? He grabs God by the feet and he says, I won't let you go until you bless me. He needed the blessing of his heavenly father. He didn't have the advantage of learning it and being conditioned into it by a human father's love. And so God, in his loving kindness and tender mercy, revealed it to him directly. And the scriptures make it clear that God's love for Jacob was a covenant love. It was not based on anything good or bad that Jacob did. It was based purely on God's love. We're not going to get into the scriptures about God loving Jacob before. You can read about it in Romans 9 and Malachi 1. But God's love for Jacob is a covenant love that was present with him throughout his life before he was even born. So the covenant love that God had for Jacob is the same covenant love that God has for us. We don't have to perform to receive our Heavenly Father's love. Amen? That is such good news. God's love for us is not based on our behavior. It's not based on anything about us. It's not about our intrinsic Performance or value or anything about what we bring to the table—we create it for ourselves. It is always something that God gives to us as a result of His covenant. It's not by works; we receive it by faith. And ultimately, God's covenant love is not about us. It's about God. God's covenant love is about the display of His infinite glory and beauty. It's about Him and who He is because He is a gracious and compassionate God showing steadfast love to thousands of generations of those who love Him and are called according to His name. So just to put this simply in crayon, God's love for you does not depend on you being smarter or stronger or prettier or richer, more educated, more successful, more talented, more creative, more athletic, more influential, God's love, and de- God's love doesn't depend on how well you dress, where you live, where you went to school. It doesn't make the slightest difference what your family was like, whether or not your own her- uh, earthly father loved you or noticed you. God loves us simply because God is a covenant-keeping God. He put his own name and reputation on the line, saying, this is who I am. And that is the love that he has for us. He made a promise, and he's going to keep it no matter what. So if you're a Christian, you belong to him. The covenant promise, the same covenant promise that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob is the same covenant promise that we now receive through faith in Christ. We are his. We're his children. We're adopted. He is our heavenly father. He loves you perfectly. He delights in you joyfully. He treasures you eternally. And He's never, ever, 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 ever going to let you go. You're His. You belong to Him. He cares for you. That's the Father that we all need. That's who your Heavenly Father is. He will not let you go now, not tomorrow, not ever. He's got you. And none of this is because of how great and wonderful and spectacular you are. Because you and me, we're sinners, we're rebels, we're wicked. All of this is because of how great and wonderful and spectacular God is. Who demonstrates his love for us in Jesus Christ. And at his death and his burial and his resurrection, he shows us just how wonderful and merciful he truly is. So delight in that. That is your father. He is a good father. And God's love for us is the vehicle through which His name is eternally exalted. Let's pray. Our Lord, we magnify Your glorious name today. And we thank You that You are the good Father who loves us. And we thank You that we see what the good Father is like, even through our failed human fathers. You show us Your own steadfast, perfect, eternal, fatherly love. You are merciful and gracious and compassionate. And Lord, we need to know and to remember the love of our Father. Lord, give us the faith to believe. And we're so often tempted because of our own experiences in this life to to think that you're distant or absent because we associate our Heavenly Father with the failures of our earthly Father. Help us to see through that and to see that those disappointments are evidences of a greater need for a perfect Heavenly Father. Give us faith to believe that and to cling to that no matter what and to be shaped by that. We also pray, Lord, that you, you will bless our Fathers in our church. Bless every father that is here. And may these men see their children through your eyes as image bearers that are loaned to them for a period of time to steward and nurture and care for and to instruct and discipline and train so that they can eternally benefit from their presence and their love. Lord, I also pray that you will heal us from the wounds of our souls left by our own fathers in whatever form it takes. You are the good Father who heals and we ask you, God, that you will provide comfort for those that are wounded by their own fathers. We thank you that in Christ we are brought into your family and we know our Heavenly Father who is so good. Help us to trust your heart. We pray all of these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information, visit ctkcincy.com.